So open your Bibles and get them open to look at Second Peter. Now, that's a, a pretty short book when you come right down to it. And yet it's got some wonderful things, things to think about today. It's a short book. How many verse, how many, how many pages are there in your Bible? Mine is three and a half. Now, there's no reason why you can't read Second Peter for the next series of meetings, because they're all going to be in Second Peter. And that short book, I believe, is critical, critically important to us today. I think it's there's several reasons for that. One of the first is that it's the last recorded words of the Apostle Peter. And there's some terrific things there. Uh, it would be important, if only for that's the reason, that you look for final words. Now, I often think of Second Timothy, which are the final words of St. Paul, as he considered the end of his life. And I think Peter always had that, as he wrote Second Peter as well. So the last words are recorded there. But the times that he wrote, now, <laughs> I was asked to do this introduction to Second Peter. That's kind of hard with a three-page book. Because one of my first objectives has got to be not to steal the subject matter of the next guy that's coming up to preach. <laughs> you can get abused for that. <clears throat> and it's easy to do in a book this short. But I think the times that Peter wrote about are important to us. And I want to look at several examples of the times related to Peter. Now, some of you, if you've done some work in Roman history, you may know more about it than I do. But I've had occasion to read a few books and so on, so I have some thoughts on that. But I want to bring this up to date. And I think there are some real parallels to our times today. Now, I'll get a little arcane right to start with as a lawyer, because I think one thing that is important in our world is the recent decision by the Supreme Court in eliminating the constitutional right that they mistakenly found in the first place for abortion. I think it's high time they did that. <laughs> and I know that everybody might not agree, as we can tell when we read the newspaper. There's kind of an uproar about that. But it's caused a lot of turmoil. Now, the elimination of abortions as a constitutional right. Now, remember that. That's what they decided. What is a constitutional right? That means it goes all the way back to the Constitution. It was the supreme uh court of the land, making that decide. So it applied to the whole country. By reversing that decision, that right no longer applies to the whole country. And it makes the opportunity and uh, to change. But there's many things that go well beyond abortion that jumped off from that decision that are now under question. For instance, can doctors be restricted from 
performing surgeries for sex changes. What? Where did that get it? Well, by the same logic that abortion is approved as a constitutional right, the reason there's such a commotion about reversing that is what else gets reversed? And they're worried about things like this being ordered not to perform, like surgeries for sex changes. Can a doctor say, I don't want to do that? I don't like that. Well, if it was a constitutional right, a doctor has a lot of trouble making that decision and making it stick. They're currently being performed this day, with or without parental consent, on children, and they're required that doctors do it as, as, uh, as a result of the abortion decision. There's also a fact that many times with an abortion surgery, they included a sex change surgery for those who no longer wanted to be considered female. Is this practice not now guaranteed as well? There was a thought that it was guaranteed along with abortion. Wow. Nobody intended that, but that's the way it was. But the right, consider this, for our culture. I'm bringing some things up to date here. And this is further up to date than I really wish to go. But the right to choose sexual orientation is now being brought into question. Society would like to exchange that the important rights of transvestites are now at risk in this country because of the reversal of abortion. The homosexual community is now adding to the chorus of objections that are now being recognized. The medical profession is now involved. That's a sobering thought. Sobering thought as far as I'm concerned. Okay, here's another issue for our times. And how does it compare to Peter's? How many wars are going on presently? Have you lost count? They're all over the place. Now, obviously, the war in Ukraine is on top. We have that being reported regularly. And it's a full-scale war between Russia and Ukraine. There's others that are being threatened. How about Formosa and China? A little channel between mainland China and Formosa, what used to be called Formosa anyway, I still do. How about the, oh well, let's go through the, through the bunch that I laid out here. There's battles going on in Somalia, Kenya, some other skirmishes around the area. We were reminded by a missionary report that there's a lot of bad things still going on in Congo. And in my youth, Ni Kundi mission statement right in that area, in the midst of that, was the primary mission that we prayed for every single time, it seemed like, on Lord's Day. We had a a doctor that had been commissioned by our assembly to go to Congo, and he was at Nian Kundi 
a fellow named Bill Deans. And that, they, this last time, they had to abandon as a, as a religious center, as a, as a center for the assemblies, and take it to a larger city, Bunia. Niankundi is basically ignored today. It's out of, out of use. India, Iraq, how about Iraq and Syria? That's a full-scale war. We even had some troops over there, apparently. But this is, our, our world in this country is kind of like Rome during Peter's time. The people in Rome had a great life. They weren't going to war, but they had armies scattered all over the known world. Big armies. They didn't exactly elect Caesar. Caesar became the general of the biggest army that happened to be around. It was a military system, but not in Rome. Rome was living a high life, apart from worried about barbarians a little further than the north. But in Rome, there was peace. There was prosperity. There was a lot of money. And they had to have entertainment to keep the citizens of Rome from thinking about it too much. So they had what they called bread and circuses. Well, think about our life. We no longer have a draft. Now, I'm old. As you know, it's our second, 62nd anniversary. It's really congratulations to Juanita because she's put up with me for this long. <laughs> And all of that is one, but we never thought about going to war with a volunteer army. In my youth, I remember everybody that went, went for the duration. Have you ever heard of that statement? We don't hear it today. But everyone who was drafted was drafted for the duration of the war. Till it was over and we won. And it took us years to do it. And we're quite pleased with the result. Pretty similar. Because the Roman army was what made the peace all over the world. But it wasn't a peace, a voluntary peace. It was a peace because if you didn't, the Roman legions would arrive and enforce peace, period. Without much celebration either. How about economics? Rome depended on its army for their economic success. The army was to go out there and collect taxes and load it on a ship and sail it back to, back to Rome. They're tax collectors. Think about what the scriptures say about tax collectors. Their tax collectors were unliked. They were uniformly hated because that was the source of income because they only sent back the majority amount of the taxes that they collected. There was nothing that hindered them from collecting more and keeping the difference. And Rome was quite happy with that. But this was not a happy time. This was not a time it required all of that effort to get people to forget about it. Well, how about us? They're looking to expand the IRS, right? just exactly what we need as far as I'm concerned is a few more people to audit taxes and 
that's not because I disapprove or don't try my best to meet every jot and tittle of the law. But more, that expanded IRS and corruption that we hear about periodically on the news and tax avoidance and all those kind of substitutes, sub-issues. Not too much different than our world. Everybody tr tried to avoid the collection of Roman taxes. But the army was very successful about sending money back to Rome. How about religion? Christianity, in the time of Peter, as far as Rome was concerned, was a pesky problem. Rome had some ideas about what they wanted to do. Their big thing was they wanted Caesar, rather, to be considered God by all people as an expression of loyalty. If you're loyal to Rome, you accept the fact of the divinity of Caesar. Utter and complete nonsense. And blasphemy as far as Christians are concerned. And so Christians were ushered into the Colosseum to get eaten up by lions and so forth. Not a happy time. And certainly not a not an expression of loyalty. And the society was a was not a happy society. It was rather an rather evil society driven by pagan philosophy with nobody to insist on, on the idea of doing right as a benefit. It was without moral influence. Furthermore, slavery predominated. That was the system in Rome. If you lost a war with Rome, you probably ended up being a slave unless you got away to the hills. Women had few legal rights in Rome. They had no means of recourse in that society either. It was not an easy situation. There was no consideration of rights unless you happened to be a Roman citizen. Do you remember anything that about the scriptures? I remember Paul insisting on his Roman citizenship. Number one, so that he didn't get thrown to the mob there in Jerusalem who were hauling for his head on a stick. No. The centurion said to him, you're a, you're a Roman citizen? Paul said, yes, I was. Yes, I am. And the guy said, I had to pay near fortune to be a Roman citizen. Roman citizenship brought you one right of appeal. And so, uh, Paul use that as we look at the at the New Testament he appealed to Caesar which every Roman citizen had that right that was their appellate court you could go and present your course your course to Caesar himself and sometimes he would acquit the person sometimes he would not but it was the one place where the people out in the bucker brush like out in Jerusalem could not just declare people guilty and kill them off. If they had Roman citizenship, they had a place to appeal. And there was no consideration of rights on anybody's part 
apart from Roman citizenship. That's the culture. That's the way they, so you sort of steer cleared of the uh, Roman soldiers because they had basic, they had all of the rights on their hands. Paul relied on his Roman citizenship to get transported to Rome. They had to ship him from where they appealed to Rome for that hearing. We look at our own terms. Christianity is no more consulted on Christian moral standards, is it? You're welcome to prove me wrong on that one. But I look back on living in Chicago for 20 years. In the early years of our stay in Chicago, whenever there was a an issue that came up that had a religious implication for it, the pastor of Moody Church would appear on the front of the front of the paper in Chicago with his opinion on what the what the mostly ungodly side of Chicago was seeking, seeking to do, and they would go there because they knew they would get a Christian perspective on it, and they did. Christian spokespersons today are not only denied consideration, in other words, nobody really wants to hear what Christianity has to say about things, but often are the subject of ridicule. Christianity is not a popular statement in our culture today. Clearly, the moral standards of our country are in serious decline. Furthermore, history is being rewritten. And I just, um, I guess part of it is, is having to study law, which is a lot of history. But into the bargain, the fact that it's being written to change standards and support changes in standards is an offense to me. Facts are facts. But whatever change is current today and needs to be proven can be proven by rewriting the history and saying, well, we've always believed this. Look at here. Not true. Furthermore, you look at our citizenship and the pursuit of money is of prime importance today where questions are being asked, hard questions, and credibility is in question everywhere. A strange culture we're living in. It's come on us gradually. At the same time, there in Rome, there was an abundance of false teachers. You could find a false teacher almost on every street corner, and they were active, and they were in conflict with the preaching of the gospel. So Paul ran into that, or Peter ran into it as well. And those false teachers worked hard with their imagination to develop something imaginative to come up with a new theology. And it was mostly to, to, in, in competition with Christianity to prove that there were good things to be said about their pagan, pagan ideas. They wanted attractive inducements. To be, to provide forgiven, provide some detail. 
And some details actually seem to be have taken from the apostles' teaching as well as confusion that was present. So they would take a piece of truth and make it make it wrong, basically. This is another topic that's addressed addressed in Second Peter. Those were things that Peter was concerned with. And I hope you're, you can see the similarities that exist between then and now in our times. We are not in a vastly different culture than Peter was in as he went to proclaim the gospel. Now these things are issues for church today. We can't just swallow these things easily. But in our world, various studies in these kind of new ideas and theologies seem to abound. And they're focuses of, this, of study. While Christianity and study of, the study of Scripture is not really a popular educational subject. Prior to Christianity, there really was no alternative approach to rights or justice apart from Roman citizenship. These were difficult times, difficult times for everybody. There's a focus that is mentioned in Second Peter that they were running into in the culture, which was end times. What's going to happen? The apostles had been told about end times, in, in part at least, but that teaching was picked up by these false teachers and changed just a little bit, which is all that it takes. But the fact is there is truth to be told about end times. And the Lord revealed things about the future to the apostles during his time with them. The false teachers picked up on this prophetic theme and published their imaginative statements. Since God had not, had not acted, their whole thing was, God doesn't exist. So why worry about it? All you ever hear from God is silence. Now, you, you think about the test of prophets. If a prophet for, for uh, the Old Testament particularly, but when they proclaimed a prophetic truth, it had to be right. It had to be on time. And any variation would cause them to be killed because they were declared to be a false prophet. You didn't have the right to make up your own prophecy and when the world was going to be changed or eliminated. Well, all of these things are comparisons between our time and Peter's time. And I just hope you can see the similarities that exist between then and now in our time. And there aren't many differences. Let's switch to the text itself, because that's where I want to get to, have been before, but I'm not preach a sermon about the texts because I'm doing the introduction of this come back come back for next Sunday and the Sunday after and Sunday after we're going to be taking up specific statements 
in Second Peter that are really important statements, particularly in the view of the similarities that we see between our time and Peter's. It's easily divided. There are three chapters. <laughs> you could make a quick summary of, of this and do one sermon, probably. It wouldn't be treated, it wouldn't be handled thoroughly, but you, you could do it. But the first chapter talks about precious personal promises. There are, they are there. They're of the divine nature and therefore us as believers in Jesus Christ. What is said about what the Lord has given to us is found in Second Peter. It sounds, it, it, it rings to us like things that we should strive for as we look to be recognized as believers, as Christians. What we should see as we grow in Christ. You look at that first chapter, you, look, you work your way down to the fifth verse, and you see words like this. Diligence. Christians should be diligent. We should be serious about what we're saying and thinking about. We should stick close to it, close to what the scriptures have to say, and not get very far off from them. Diligence is the first thing. Look at the second one. Moral excellence. Whoa. That means we're supposed to be examples to other people about our moral tone. It's the tone and the direction that should be observed. Third, there's knowledge. How do we get knowledge? Well, you better know what the Bible has to say for the first place. Because we can have all, I can have all the knowledge about the law and calculus and whatever else I, they tried to teach me in engineering school. I should know about all those pretty well. But that, they aren't nearly as important as knowing what the Bible says. Not nearly. Because these are things that should be observable, if you will, in our lives. Knowledge is one of them. Next one. I've always had trouble with self-control. We don't just get angry and say what we please, do what we please. Perseverance. Are we one that's known for sticking through what we're trying to get done without walking away from it and throwing it over? Perseverance is an important element of Christianity. Godliness. Whoa, now we're getting in deep. How is it we're going to look like God? And what do we know about that? Followed by, and you would think this would be reversed, kind of. Why not brotherly kindness before godliness? No, that's not how it's listed. Godliness leading to brotherly kindness. And finally, love. That's quite a list. That's quite a list, and it isn't optional. It isn't just suggested to it. Now, frankly, this is a personal subject with me. It has been since I first came to know the Lord up at Deerfoot Lodge in Speculator, New York. They had a written objective there, the production of men of God in a wilderness context that I don't think has ever been proved, improved upon. What do you do to produce 
men of God. Deerfoot presented that to me. For the first time I saw, now I was a kid, I was about 12 years old at the time, I saw Christians that were really admirable people. They were athletes, they were mountain climbers, they were all kinds of things. They were veterans. It became, this passage became my early outline as to what I should do to become a man of God. So you list that whole list. You look at them and there's, there's some word studies to be done there. Now I found it to be a hard path, but a worthwhile one. Because most times I, dis, I really kind of discouraged myself when I would find myself falling into a puddle on the basis of these these words that were written there. But I knew they were written there for a purpose. And they were what I should do to become a man of God. And I found it to be a really good objective. Not an easy one, but a really good one. Now Peter, in the process of writing this, was very conscious that the end of his life was near. He wanted to make the most of it in his work. And he writes to people he knew and he knew well, aware of what they were facing in their lives. And he basically wants us to to remind them once more of the promises that he'd been given from the Lord. Promises that that were yet to be fulfilled in their lives. But they are wonderful, precious promises. And you're going to find that in chapter 1 of 2 Peter. Now, Peter wasn't a person to mince words. <laughs> he just said what was on his mind, and it was pretty straight, pretty directive. Verse 10 says, The more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. Whew. Look at that list of things. I can't say I never stumbled over them. And I'm not even sure that I don't stumble over them today. today. 62 years married. It's a wonderful thing. But Juanita deserves deserves the credit for that 62 years more than I do. She had to put up with me. And I was blessed to put up with her. But those kind of, those kind of statements are there. I will be diligent, verse 15, that at any time after my departure, you may be able to call these things in mind. That's what Peter had in mind. Chapter 1. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were witnesses of his majesty. Now what does that recall to you? The Mount of Transfiguration. Peter was right right there when he saw the glory of God fall on the Lord Jesus Christ. And they shone with a bright light. And of course, Peter couldn't keep quiet. I know what we should do, Lord. We should build a little little monument here for this occasion so that nobody will be able to forget it. Oh, my. 
And he would say this about prophecy. So we have the prophetic word made more sure. To whom you will do well to pay attention. As to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star. The morning star rises in in your hearts. Prophecy was reality. He had seen some of it. And he was looking forward to more. Okay, chapter 2. Quite a shift in gears. Peter shifts to the opposition. Who did he have worried about? The false teachers. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies and denying the master who brought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Not many words minced there. Not many things avoided. False teachers will be done away with by God himself. Serious problem at the time. Teachers were, it was sort of an optional career. They would go around the society drumming up people to follow them and use their imagination to try and make it an appealing and present way of life. (laughs) Now, they weren't restricted in what they had to say. They weren't restricted in what they thought their Christianity was about. Some early converts must have slipped back into these kinds of things as you read chapter 2. It was a mixture of truth and error, and that becomes simply false. Period. you got to accept the Lord Jesus Christ as he personally is. Now, prophecy was apparently a big subject, and not surprisingly, it continues to be sought out today. I think in all of our lifetime, we have found a person that claimed the world was going to end at a specific time. Pardon me, he was a known Christian. And it didn't happen, of course. I didn't expect it to happen. But there were Christians that were pretty disappointed about it. He thought it was going to be pretty good. There was a long delay before prophecy had been spoken. And they said, well, there, that's what I'm saying. God doesn't do anything. Forget about it. You're not going to hear from God. This was a great thing for a false prophet because nobody was proving him wrong. He could make the most outrageous claims and God did not intervene to either deny or accept those outrageous claims. That, For some reason, in God's license, the prophets, false prophets, were not called to account. They were slaves of corruption, he says. There's another nice little phrase from Peter. But that was ability to win without consequences. The thought that they would never be held to account for the sin that they promoted. There are people like that today. They had so much to enjoy. And they wanted a perfect way out. A source of undeserved 
forgiveness. Just because God is so gracious. False prophets, in fact, prevented belief in the Lord. And therefore, they were the enemy. And supernatural thinking, when it's false, can fill the mind to the extent that it's unlikely that that person is going to accept Jesus Christ if they're really committed to false teaching. And it was a serious issue to Peter. They should be done away with as far as Peter's concerned. Period. Zap. Bang. There are times when I see it happens. I say, how come there's no zap bangness right today, Lord? But there isn't. Part of that is the grace of God. The giving of opportunity to people to turn to the truth. But when you come to chapter 3, which talks about the future, it's got to turn one page to get there. It's about the, the fact of prophecy and what, how that's going to be received. And part of it is nothing's happened. God hasn't fulfilled these prophecies. Some of them are not popular. But supernatural thinking can, and we have people that think about supernatural things. Just turn on your TV and watch, well, watch what's being promoted to children in the, in the teaching that they get from the, from the cartoons and whatnot that go on. Look hard for supernatural things and you'll find them easily. Easily. It was a serious issue to Peter. And so he devoted chapter 3 really mostly to the future. He's stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and the Savior spoken by your prophets. By your apostles. Know this first. In the last days, mockers will come. We got any of them? Got any mockers of Christianity? Doesn't take a lot of stretch to find that one fulfilled. And that they say is, where's the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep. All continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Wow. And you will hear people saying that. Have you heard? <laughs> have you heard about them finding a tooth in Jerusalem that they say is something like 50 million years old? Years old? How do they know that? Because they can't explain it apart from the coverage of millions of years. What does the Bible have to say about that? Can God make a creation that has a background? Sure he can. But here's what the story is with the false prophets. Verse 7. The present heavens and earth, by his word, 
are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. Don't let this fact escape your notice. The day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years in one day. One day. Now that's quite a thing for us ignorant fishermen to write, isn't it? But he had an understanding of the truth of the scriptures. And he deals with prophecy. The day of the Lord, verse 10, will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Whoa! He jumped over, over a whole lot of prophecy, didn't he? He went to the last two books of the book of Revelation, the last two chapters of the book of Revelation, a new heaven and a new earth. That's part of prophecy. But it's not part of prophecy for us. We're going to be right there with the Lord, watching all of this unfold. The next thing we look for prophetically is the rapture, is the return of, in person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And those that are believers will be taken with him to glory. That group has a beginning and an end. That group starts at the day of Pentecost. It ends at the day of the rapture. Now, an awful lot of things that we can find to argue about don't have anything to do with this. They happen way before this. The next thing to happen prophetically in the scriptures is the rapture, the return of Jesus Christ himself to take us out of here. I don't know about you, but I'm ready to go. I'm kind of tired of the world as it is today. I don't like to see a lot of it. But the start here that Peter talks about in Second Peter goes against the denial that God never does anything. He says, you just don't count time the way he does. We got jokes being told about the Lord's return. It's never happened. The truth is, just as is said, the entire world is reserved for fire at a time of judgment. You don't want to be here. And I don't think we are going to be here. There's no dispensational issues at this point. I think everybody has, Peter certainly has already moved beyond pre- and post-tribulation argument. That's over. Pre- and post-pre-tribulation is the rapture. Post-tribulation is when the kingdom begins. And that's there for a thousand years. And then sometime after that, this passage about the day of the Lord and the end of the world as we know it now comes to pass. The heavens will be destroyed by burning and elements will melt with a fervent heat. But according to his presence, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There's going to be a perfect earth. 
And that's where righteousness is going to dwell. That's what the Lord is bringing to a conclusion. And when you get to the last couple of chapters of Revelation, there's not a whole lot of whole lot of disagreement on the prophetic picture. That's Christ at the end of Revelation. A new heavens and a new earth. Now I expect to be with Jesus Christ in glory for that day, that occasion. There's a special blessing after the rapture. Special blessing for the church. This is another prophetic issue. It's a, one that Peter just brings up fearlessly. And goes, runges right at it. It's a time of judgment by God to the entire world. It's final. It's complete. Everything is new. And it says punishment is reserved for the unbeliever without Jesus Christ. I think this is after the millennium. I think this is when it has been clearly observed there's no righteousness no not one and then punishment will take place and a perfect heaven and a perfect earth will be installed now that's Peter's final objective for all believers and there's a great verse in verse 18 the last verse in 2nd Peter but grow in grace well let's read 17 too you therefore beloved Knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace, instead of that, grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. That's a pretty strong ending, isn't it, Second Peter? That's what the Lord has in store for us. Peter understood it. He understood it. Understood that that should be the final word that he was writing. And I hope everybody's ready for it. There's a lot included. Three pages, that is. Three pages. That's all there is. So there's no reason why you can't read three pages once a week for the next four or five weeks. Read and reread Second Peter. It'll be a blessing to you. And turn it over in your mind. He has put a lot there to be thought about. And they're profound thoughts. Thanks for listening. I hope this was a good introduction. <laughs> I was worried about that. I don't know. I didn't want to take anybody. I'm not sure who the first one is going to preach on the first few verses of Second Peter, but there's a lot of material in Second Peter. So we look forward to that, and I hope you do too. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we look at these words from Peter. We recognize the fact that he was a loved disciple and that he looked forward to being there. He looked forward to preaching the gospel. He looked forward to seeing people converted and turned to the Lord Jesus Christ to really truthfully understand who he is. Lord, may it be so for your name's sake. May we get gain from reading from this book because it gives us a lot of things to think about. 
particularly in our time. I think our times are similar. And I just would pray that you would cement these truths, the important truths of Second Peter, into our head and into our hearts. Dismiss us now with your blessing, we pray. Watch over us, for we would pray in Jesus' name. Amen.